I know a lot of people in the church world may be familiar with names like Pastor Stephen Furtick or John MacArthur or John Piper, but I would argue that, particularly within the church community, we should know Dr. Amos Young. Amos is one of the most prolific theologians and writers in the church today. He has authored or edited over 50 volumes to date. Uh, he's not some ivory tower theologian though. Uh, he touches on theological themes that have crucial implications for the way we live today. In this episode, I interview Amos and touch on a variety of themes such as his life as a theologian, how do we address some of the social injustices we see in our world today, the work of the Holy Spirit, and even disability studies. My name is Josh Samuel and I'm the host of Theology Breakdown, which is all about life, God, and the Bible, where we seek to really uh, break down the transforming themes of theology in an accessible format. Let me first introduce you a bit more to who Dr. Amos Young is. Amos Young is Professor of Theology and Mission, Dean of the School of Theology and the School of Intercultural Studies, and Chief Academic Officer at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. His graduate education includes degrees in theology, history, and religious studies. He's licensed as a minister with the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. He has also authored or edited over 50 volumes. He and his wife, Alma, have three children and five grandchildren. Really happy to introduce you to Dr. Amos Young. Check this out. Okay, so uh, welcome to Theology Breakdown, which is all about uh, life, God, and the Bible, where we're always seeking to uh, break down the transforming themes of theology in an accessible format. Today, it's my absolute privilege uh, to have Dr. Amos Young uh, join me here. And uh, uh, Amos is a prolific scholar, a writer, and uh, just a man of God. <laughs> Thanks for joining uh, me here today, Amos. Thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, you know, I, I remember uh, meeting you in Memphis many years ago for Society of Pentecostal Studies, and I met you there, and then we kind of connected here and there by email, and uh, uh, more recently, you know, worked on this book here, uh, The Charismatic Spirit, Apostolic Preaching, the 21st Century. Uh, you know, I was really grateful that you, you invited me to kind of help out with that and uh, provide some editorial work, and I wrote the intro, and so that was, that was real. I, I love doing that, because... Uh, really helped me get a sense of you a little more, uh, even your approach to preaching, and uh, really kind of seeing how you unpack some of those heavy theological themes in a, in a congregational setting, which is really cool. And uh, if anyone's listening, I encourage you to get that book because it's, uh, I, I love being able to, you know, work on that because it just shows his prolific work in an accessible format. Um, and one of the cool things, I'll be honest, Amos, that I, I appreciate about you, not just your, your scholarly work, I mean, you've uh, written quite a lot, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I found that, you know, hey, Amos is not just, not an ivory tower scholar, this, uh, he's a down-to-earth, uh, kind, and actually really funny guy, uh, which I didn't realize at first when I met him, and so I was like, wow, I was like pleasantly surprised that Amos is a really uh, down-to-earth uh, guy. Um, authored and edited over 50 volumes. Pretty impressive. Um, Amos, tell me, tell me a little bit about what life is like for you these days. Uh, for those who are watching, you can see that he's got that Fuller Theological Seminary uh, in the background there. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, again, thanks, Josh. You're very kind in um, having me here and also then obviously in some of the things you've said. Um, and if, you, if folks do pick up the book that you really kindly helped me edit and did an excellent job, by the way. 
Oh, um, in the in the front there, I think in the preface or something like that, there are links to most of the sermons that are in that book that Josh worked, worked to transcribe. And you can actually listen to them as well and kind of get a feel for, you know, how does a sermon um, feel like when you listen to it? But on the other hand, how does it feel like when you read the transcribed version? You might get two, hopefully not two dissonant experiences, but at least two distinct experiences with regard to uh, the content. But yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I am a dean here of the School of Theology and the School of Intercultural Studies at Fuller Seminary. I've also, in the last couple of months, taken on a role as chief academic officer of the seminary. We also have a school of psychology here at Fuller. So um, before that, I taught theology and missiology here at the seminary. So I've shifted from a more teaching role uh, into a much more heavier administrative role these days. So um, yeah, all the challenges of higher education, of theological education, certainly in a time of global pandemics, um, that's what my days are taken up with <laughs> these yeah. times. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, especially in the midst of this pandemic, I can't imagine, you know, having to manage, you know, your scholarly work and, you know, the administrative work that you're doing. That's, that's, a, that's a lot going on. Um, you know, t tell me a little bit about your why, Amos. You know, I mean, you've written quite a lot, edited, authored so much. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are listening or watching are really interested in theology. So this is a kind of really cool privilege for us to kind of get to the heartbeat of a, uh, a well-known theologian. You know, tell, tell, me, tell us a little bit about your why. Why did you kind of take this route? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Society of Pentecostal Studies uh, earlier where we met initially. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure what year that was, uh, maybe 10, 13 years ago. I can't remember. But I think the why of what, uh, what I'm doing, I think I, one of the ways, I mean, there are lots of different um, elements I could point to, but I think one of the important elements is uh, in 1994, um, at my first Society for Pentecostal Studies meeting, I was a graduate student. I hadn't started a PhD program yet. I was thinking about a PhD studies, but finishing up my second master's degree at the time. I uh, went to the SPS meeting. Um, I think it was in in Wheaton, Illinois. I think it may have been at, um, at Wheaton College. I can't remember for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember um, a number of things. One, I remember um, an interview that was um, held with Gordon Fee at the time. And I think he was being, uh, he, would, he had just been given the Lifetime Achievement Award. So every year the SPS has a Lifetime Achievement Award. And so I, I remember being struck by that interview, being struck by, you know, obviously his le the legacy, he, he was already at that time even leaving as a Pentecostal New Testament scholar. And then I also remember um, having a hallway conversation with a couple of theologians uh, that became fast friends, um, uh, Frank Machia, who some of you might, might know, and someone who's now passed from the scene, a Roman Catholic charismatic theologian named Ralph Del Coley. And I remember listening to the conversation hallway um, as a young grad student, um, recently being inspired to, to sort of think more theologically. I remember how these brothers, uh, Del Coley as a Catholic charismatic and Machia as a Pentecostal, and he, Machia by that, at that time had just, he was, you know, five years out of his PhD uh, from Basel, um, teaching at Southeastern University. And they were talking modern theology that I'd just been reading and, and doing my own grappling with, but they were talking about it in relationship to their work as Pentecostal theologians and charismatic theologians. Hmm. And along with that as well, again, that, that someone like Gordon Fee as a New Testament scholar 
was also able to make suggestions for how being a Pentecostal also opened up ways to read the New Testament. Um, now, oftentimes we think of Fee just sort of as an evangelical exegete, but, but there's a number of his works where you see how his Pentecostal background and perspective contribute to that. And so I remember coming away from that conference really now being doubly hired by not just the theology I was reading at an evangelical seminary, which didn't really know much about the Pentecostal world, but I remember saying, you know, there are Pentecostal questions that can be asked. There are Pentecostal perspectives that can be inquired into. Uh, Pentecostal experiences that can be interrogated and potentially generative for scriptural interpretations, uh, generative for the kinds of theological inquiry that we might that we might want to <clears throat> pursue. And really, it's you know the rest of my life. I mean, you could say it's basically been an unfolding of that. It's just sort of been one question after another. Myself as you know, growing up as a Pentecostal preacher's kid, a Pentecostal missionary kid, <clears throat> and then sort of given permission and even inspired in, the, in those moments to say, bring that Pentecostal experience, perspective, um, mm. set of churches into your theological work. Mm. And, you know, I went to my PhD program and I did exactly that. And in some respects, I've just never stopped doing that. Hmm. So I guess would that relate to kind of the the quantity and quality uh, of what you're putting out? Because you, you know, it's I had a question. You know, I wanted to know, like, you know, how did how did you do this? Because um, you know, people look at you know your CV. You know, your CV is uh, longer than some books. You know, in terms of like the, the type of stuff that you've you know written and put out, books, uh, articles, all that. Um, yeah, like what what? Uh, tell me about the how. You tell me the why. Tell me about the how. Yeah, I'm not sure fully about the how, but you know, it's it's certainly been the case that once I began to ask theological questions as a Pentecostal, the questions just kept coming. I mean, mm. so you know, from that perspective, I mean, you could well imagine this was the mid late '90s, and of course, in the last 20 years, given that this has really been the decades within which Pentecostal theology has begun to emerge on the scene. So you could even say that my, my academic career has overlapped with the emergence of the Pentecostal perspective in the mm. theological arena. Yeah. And up until this point, there really hadn't even been much Pentecostal contributions, right? So there was, there was very little, I mean, any question I asked, nothing had been published on it from a Pentecostal perspective, yeah. theologically, academically. Hmm. So it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be the first one, you know, and then the next question comes and it's sort of like, all right, just got to keep going, you know, and, and, and the next essay and the next book and the next book. And, uh, you know, I mean, how did it happen? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure about all of that, but, you know, I've been blessed with um, administrators who have been very supportive of me as a young scholar. I've, I've been blessed to have been able to, um, you know, work in environments, uh, departments, um, faculties uh, that have uh, valued my my contributions and attempted to set, you know, give me time to to do this work. I stayed up late at night. I woke up early in the morning. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a combination of all of those in terms of the how. But but at the end of the day, I think I think it's really the answer that really is. There's a sense in which I've just felt like the Pentecostal perspective opened up new horizons and mm. my writing has really just sort of followed, just followed the path of inquiry as it's opened up and, you know, mm. opportunities keep emerging, 
questions keep un, uh, unfolding mm. and it would have been it would not have it would have been irresponsible right mm. for me not to have followed those questions for me not to have followed those opportunities so yeah. uh, i'm very grateful for everything that's opened up i mean more has been given to me than, than maybe i would invest myself hmm. you know when you write uh are you someone who like you, you write your first draft and you're it's pretty good or are you kind of like like me who have to do a, a bunch of drafts <laughs> you know does that yeah well i'm not you know the nice thing about a word processor is that um you're you're always rewriting at a certain level you sure. know um sure. you, you write you write a section and then you go back and revise the previous section a few lines mm. in order to yep. make sure there's coherence you know you finish a chapter and you go back to the introduction and you rephrase the introduction to make sure you got it right. You know, you finish a part and you go back and rephrase the introduction of the whole book and so on and so forth. Right. So okay. I, I mean, yeah, there's an iterative process here that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to unpack that Pentecostal background soon, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit about, you know, a question about legacy. You know, I realize that, you know, you're probably going to be writing stuff that maybe you haven't even thought about yet in the next number of years. Um, but if I were to ask you now, you know, 2020, um, what two or maybe more aspects of theology uh, would you want to make sure you've kind of left your mark on and why? Well, I mean, there, there's a sense in which, I mean, I, I took this job as a double administrator. Now some would say triple administrator uh, in part because I did feel like this was what I needed to do at this point in my life and i knew doing this actually that i um probably am am not i don't have as much time to do the scholarship that i certainly did up until i took this these positions um but but i also felt at a certain level that um i have been able to make a couple of substantive contributions and in principle i think they're they're interrelated but i would put it this way one is i do hope that you know what i've been able to open up is the possibility of sort of a Pentecostal theological imagination hmm. for, for Pentecostal churches, for Pentecostal movements globally. Um, and, and I really just put it this way, opening it up. I mean, there's a sense in which theological traditions that have um, depth to them um, persists for um, long periods of time, right? So as long as movements are, are vital, there's a sense in which theological work is never, never, fin never finished. So if we believe that the Pentecostal movement, and I'm not thinking about institutional forms, but I'm thinking about it as movements of the spirit. If we think movements of the spirit are, are going to continue, right? Then um, from that perspective, I hope that my contribution is simply that we ought to take those seriously. And when we do take those seriously, they can become uh, sources of theological imagination, inspiration, and construction um, that will then need to continue, right? Because movements continue. They continue mm -hmm. to unfold, they continue to develop. And as long as they're unfolding and developing, then, then hopefully the theological um, thinking, the liberation and discernment will follow from that. Hmm. Um, so, so that's more specifically, you know, movements of the spirit. But I guess at the end of the day then, and this is something I think that I grapple with at the very beginning of my, of my even my career as a Pentecostal theologian, so to speak, but at the end of the day, it's not really being about the Pentecostal movement. I mean, at, at a certain level, historically, we could say that the Pentecostal movement is a 20th century phenomenon. I wonder, really, whether, I, I wonder sometimes whether or not the Pentecostal movement will persist through the 21st century, or maybe by the time it gets to the end of the 21st century, it'll 
take on a different character. Hmm. I do think it's valuable to think about movements of the spirit. Hmm. I, I think that Pentecostal movement in the 20th century was one kind of movement of the spirit, and mm-hmm. there have been many, many others historically over the centuries, and I would, I would say into the future, right? Because the spirit's not going to stop moving. And so at the end of the day, then, I think that what really the Pentecostal, at least my Pentecostal perspective has invited me to think about is how do we understand movements of the spirit? How do we understand the movement of the Holy Spirit? How do we understand the movement of God as Holy Spirit? How do we understand God as spirit? And, and those questions, I would say, have led me to invite myself and I think anyone who might, who might read me or anyone who, who really think through these issues to say, at the end of the day, then, we, we ought to be redirected back to Scripture and to the Christian tradition and its thinking about God as Spirit, God as Holy Spirit. And from that perspective, um, um, what we're invited to, you know, Scripture says that no one can... can um, can can see Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit, for instance, right? So mm-hmm. what that means really is that everything that we really do, even as theologians, is spirited. It's it's by the Spirit. Um, and from that perspective, everything that we do is after what I call now after Pentecost. So that at the end of the day, I'm I'm less in, I'm less desirous of saying, well, Amos was a Pentecostal theologian. Okay, yeah, he was at a certain level, but I'd be more grateful if if I would be remembered as someone that said, uh, that called attention to the work of God, the Spirit, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, Hmm. and who invited us back to Scripture Mm -hmm. to reread it as as a story of God the Spirit at work, of God the Holy Spirit at work, and therefore to remind us that life is a gift of that Spirit, and that our own ongoing work, even as theologians, are expressions of that and extensions of that gift, and, and from that perspective, all theology is what I would call after Pentecost. It's not Pentecostal in the sense that I understand it in the 21st century, although it's a little bit of that, but, but that's of less importance. What's more important is recognizing that there's a spirited dimension. There's this uh, pneumatic dimension. There's this holy ghost or holy spirit dimension to our lives and our, and our theological work. And if that's what I can remember for, then I think... Um, Maybe I'll look down from heaven and, and feel some degree of satisfaction. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so, yeah, Pentecostal imagination, uh, the movements of the spirit. Um, yeah, you know, when, when I worked with you on that book, Charismatic Spirit, I was, you know, it was really cool just how the, the ways you kind of saw the work of the spirit in ways that um, sometimes the traditional Pentecostal may not see. Right. And that was something that I, I was really uh, appreciative of. I was like, oh, wow, I n- never thought about the spirit in this way and that way and that way. And you really kind of opened up those avenues of thought. Um, is that because of your Pentecostal background? Like, is, is, is that has shaped your theology? And, and, and kind of similar on, on the flip side, are there aspects of Pentecostals that have not shaped your theology? Um, so to, to double-sided question, how is the kind of movements of the spirit something that's really kind of been shaped by your Pentecostal background? And on the flip side, are there things that have shaped you that maybe haven't come from the Pentecostal side of things? Actually, there's like three or four different questions in there. <laughs> okay, um, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I was just trying to follow all the layers and I got kind of lost after like the third one. Nice. Um, I think that one of the things that the Pentecostal experience invited me to um, attend to is how life in the spirit is dynamic. 
hmm. it, it, you know, that, that the Lord wants to do something new in our lives every day, right? So yesterday's ideas, well, okay, maybe they're valid today, but maybe they're not. I mean, they, hmm. you know, or, or, or not valid, but, but maybe they're relevant today. Maybe they're not. Um, I think that this Pentecost, this was at least one of the takeaways of my growing up as a Pentecostal pastor's kid, preacher's kid, missionary, missionary kid. And from that perspective, um, it led me to um, really ask the question, well, what is the Holy Spirit saying today through what venues? And, and, and in other words, that to me is really what allows Pentecostal movements to even be really spirit-filled movements, is not because it's stuck with a certain model or a certain set of uh, histories, but is that this history itself opens us up to life in the spirit, right? Living in the spirit, being renewed by the spirit, being um, uh, revitalized by the spirit. Um, and at the same time, then scripture is also clear that, um, you know, let two or three prophets speak and then let the congregation decide. Mm -hmm. So the, the, you know, we all might be prompted to feel like certain things are what the spirit is doing, but we still have to ask. We still have to be discerning. And so, you could say that um, my Pentecostal intuitions have opened me up to trying to listen to the voice of the spirit from any and every direction. Mm. And some people think that, that I, I, I look too far sometimes and too widely. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, uh, whether it's in the congregation or from north, south, east, or west, whatever we feel might be the word of the spirit, we've, we're invited to pause always to to enter into discernment, to be prayerful, um, to engage in the community, to engage with the tradition, to listen to contrary voices, which makes it complicated. But right, mm -hmm. but Acts 2, you know, the classic Pentecost narrative gives us both of that. It gives us the assurance that people can understand when the many voices declare the glory of God, even as it also gives us the, the caution that the many voices sometimes lead to what, you know, uh, the Lucan author calls bewilderment, amazement, and perplexity. Mm -hmm. and that's how, that's how uh, the many voices were described unfolding in Acts 2, right? So I think we got to expect both. And, mm -hmm. and that's part of what life trying to follow after the Spirit is, you know, is sorting through those voices, mm -hmm. doing that tentatively, being ready to admit that we're wrong, being ready to change our minds, being ready to, um, um, you know, listen to new interpretations, hmm. even while pressing forward, um, holding fast to scripture and to um, the, you know, um, that, 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 discern, that sense of discernment that gives us confidence rather than undermines our, our confidence. So it's, it's, and I think, you know, it's really just life, uh, Christian life, Christian discipleship, growing yeah. in confidence, growing in discernment, growing in the capacity to discern. Even all the while we're adding new voices into the into the repertoire, you know, we're we're making new friends, we're opening ourselves up to new movements, we're we're you know we're listening to um, um, yeah um, friends. Yeah, scripture call talks uh, uses the language of um, new and old wineskins, for instance. Mm -hmm. so. Okay, so yeah, in a way that you could see that Pentecostal impulse of you know the work of the spirit and then but you also talk about you know hearing the work of the spirit north southwest you know just in different contexts maybe even outside of the church context 
So that, that would be a lot different than maybe what we typically hear in a classical Pentecostal context, right? Um, what, what made you kind of think outside the box in that regard? Um, I suppose in part because, I mean, in part because I came from, you know, I was born in the country of Malaysia. Um, I'm of Chinese descent. I'm an immigrant to the United States. Um, I also, you know, I, I went to a Pentecostal Bible college. Uh, I, then I went to an evangelical oriented um, seminary. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a sec, well, I, I went to a secular university. Um, I studied um, my, for my PhD in a very pluralistic context. Mm. And, you know, it's the 2000s, right? Where, in fact, our ability to interact in this digital space is part of what makes life in 2020 what it is, right? Mm-hmm. We, we have access to the plurality of voices. And yeah. that's just really, and not just access, but we actually interact with people. And, yeah. and I mean, obviously, COVID-19 is, is re, you know, reframing some of those lines of access and lines of intersection. But the point is that for any of us who live in urban contexts, um, you know, we, we live in multicultural, pluralistic uh, environments, uh, yourself, I think, as well, um, you know, coming from ha- having some kind of immigrant roots. Mm-hmm. So all of these things invite us to consider that the world is a lot bigger than I think 100 years ago when we, and the world's always been the same size, right? But 100 years ago, mm-hmm. we would not have had as much easy access to the other side of the world, um, other cultures, other traditions and if you were born uh you know uh in the upper midwest in a protestant church then it's likely that you might have grown up and died in that same community and from that perspective your theological imagination uh was quite narrow but it was sufficient because Mm. you didn't have to account for for much in that context Mm. whereas um i think that we have as many theological questions as we do in part because we're exposed to things now, as I think we all know, knowledge is doubling every couple of years. Um, and, and many of us even know that we know of that. And, and many of us are even following out some of the discoveries in our various you know, arenas of work and so on. So how do we make sense, theological sense of the unchanging God of the faithfulness of the gospel, its steadfastness amidst this dizzying, um, uh, world in which we, we live in. So hmm. um, there's a sense in which I think that the questions that I was asking relative to what is the Holy Spirit trying to say was, again, in part trying to make sense of this this sense of a very, very fastly moving world hmm. um, and, and how that then invites and, and generates new questions hmm. that then, you know, if, if we have the privilege and the opportunity to pursue then end up resulting in maybe some of the books I've written. Yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Let me ask you, if you don't mind to comment, uh, what, what are some of the things you like or maybe don't like in terms of what's happening in the theological world among evangelicals and Pentecostals or things that you're like, you're here like, Hey, I'm kind of liking this or not liking what I'm seeing here. Well, I think I think right now, you know, one of the big challenges of uh, in North America, in particular, that we weren't in an election. By the way, you're in Canada, so yeah. <laughs> uh, you, might, you might be a little bit. Oh, we we see it all. We see it all. We're following. <laughs> might be in a slightly different context. It right? is. I mean, it is different. The, but the stakes see. the stakes are not as high. Yeah. 
potentially in, in mm-hmm. Canada. Although, yeah, I mean, although obviously um, you've been impacted by, you know, whatever the United States does has global uh, reverberations. Absolutely. And, and I think, I think one of the things that, um, you know, we're seeing, this is a time, not, not just a global pandemic, it's also a time of how that pandemic has unearthed the social uh, injustices um, that have been perpetuated over generations. Uh, and and the, global, the global pandemic has op- exposed all of the social injustices that have been you know, perpetuated across, especially racial and ethnic lines for generations. And there's a sense in which I think many people in the church are, are realizing that many of them uh, in a fresh way, uh, many of them uh, with a fresh urgency of how can we make sure that we attend more fully to how the gospel is supposed to be good news for every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. How do we live that out? Uh, how do we bear witness faithfully to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in this particular historical time and context? Uh, what does it mean for us to, um, uh, you know, to live fully into our Christian discipleship and, and as participants in the mission and redemptive mission of God in this socio-historical uh, space? And I think from, from you know, one of, one of the things that I do feel challenged about, and, and again, I mean, my parents, my mother was the result of a Pentecostal, a Senegal missionary who went to Malaysia in the mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, and she came to know Christ through her. And in fact, then my parents uh, was sponsored by her to come to Northern California and to, um, and, and to work among Chinese-speaking immigrants um, in the mid-70s when I and my family then came. So there's a lot that I'm grateful for with regard to the legacy of um, our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, particularly our white Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Um, and, you know, I've had membership with the, with the North American Assemblies of God, a predominantly white Pentecostal denomination for uh, most of my life. That was my dad, my father's denomination. Again, um, the missionary who came with a, an Assemblies of God missionary. Um, so there's a lot that I am grateful for with regard to how uh, the Assemblies of God in particular, but other Pentecostal denominations have served the cause of mission. On the other hand, and I think this is also something that, that we're also seeing now as well, um, that we also realize how um, our missionaries did their work rather ignorant, rather um, uh, unthoughtful about how they were also exporting Western culture and then expecting um, their converts to uh, be converted, not just to Christ, but to a certain way, a cultural way of life. Um, And that way of life and that um, culture was not just American, but it was uh, Euro, Euro American. And in that respect, quite white at a certain level. Um, one of the things I think I am a bit discouraged about is how, um, you know, as, as many of our evangelical and Pentecostal denominations today and churches and movements in North America today, again, many are, many are really awakening to that, to, that, um, to that part of that ecclesial identity, but many others are not as well. So it's, mm. it's unfortunately really a polarizing time um, yeah. in which, you know, we, we talk about the color blindness of the gospel, but, but, but talking about the color blindness of the gospel doesn't allow us to name how um, the gospel is for people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And, and even in Acts 2, Acts 2 gives us the geographic regions, the cultural mm-hmm. and ethnic, uh, 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 you know, peoples from which uh, those around the Mediterranean world will gather together in the streets of Jerusalem and through whom and through whose languages then the Holy Spirit inspired declarations of under wondrous works of God. So 
there's a sense in which the redemptive work of the gospel needs to come through the specificity of the language, the experience, the witness, the tongues, if you will, mm. of people from every part of the world mm. in their in the authenticity and integrity of their own experience and their own culture, their perspective, their language. Um, and part of the challenge then is for us to attend to that and, and to name what the spirit is saying and doing through these languages, peoples and cultures, mm-hmm. and, and then to lift that up as part of what it means to be um, the global body of Christ um, that is constituted by many members with each with their own gifts, each with their own charisms, and how do we honor that? And not only honor that, how do we attend to those witnesses and how do we become transformed through, those, through attentiveness to their experiences? How, how can we, like 1 Corinthians 12 say, says, um, be in solidarity with, which means, well, 1 Corinthians 12 doesn't use that word, but it says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. These are actually charisms of the spirit that enable us to attend to the cries and pains of our brothers and sisters or attend to the laughs and the, uh, happiness of our brothers and sisters. Mm. Um, and, and that's what we call solidarity, right? How mm. do we attend to the laughs and the, the, um, the joys, but also the cries and the pains that are being borne by the body of Christ, members of the body of Christ around the world? Um, that, I think, is the Pentecostal miracle. That, I think, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think we're, we're hearing and seeing more and more of that, even across North America and the North American public space. But unfortunately, because of the partisanship, because of the polarism, uh, there, you know, there still seems to be segments of our churches that are wanting to um, you know, defend old ways of, of keeping themselves um, you know, unmoved and un, uh, 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 you know, preserved from uh, migrants or the mixing of cultures or the mixing of of languages in our midst. So I think those are some of the, both the opportunities and the challenges for us these days. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's super helpful. Very important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, yeah, th- I really appreciate that because, you know, you're really kind of speaking to how, you know, theology impacts contemporary life. You know, a lot of times people think of theology as just kind of head knowledge and really doesn't impact us. You know, uh, you know, people, you know, jokingly sometimes refer to seminaries as cemeteries, uh, but you're, you're saying, Hey, you know, we have incredible relevance. Theology speaks to these issues. Um, you know, I think I've told you before, you know, I got this uh, right here, uh, your book right here. Uh, the Bible disability in the church, you know? And so this is actually, I think I told you, this is actually one of my favorite books, uh, theologically speaking, and, and just in general, honestly, really is. And uh, every year I teach a course uh, on eschatology and I introduce my students to this, uh, your book and some of your thoughts there. And it always brings about a lot of lively discussion. Um, you know, you really kind of made me rethink how I think about Jesus's resurrection, his marked body, and it's relevant for our bodies and, you know, cause he's the model for us. Right. And, and you tie it into disability studies. Can you, can you briefly give me that elevator pitch on how people can understand that connection with disability studies? Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Well, um, I, I suppose I came to that in part because um, I have a younger brother uh, named Mark who has Down syndrome and um, he still lives with my mom and dad still, so he's, he's doing fairly well, although, you know, as a now um, 45-year-old man, he's got all the opportunities and challenges that uh, pertain to uh, living with Down syndrome, you know, at that age. So, um, but uh, praise God for him. But in any case, 
at a certain point, you know, I was invited to think about the experiences of people with disabilities, thinking about life with my brother, Mark, um, and, you know, then thinking, well, what does redemption mean for people like Mark? And what does redemption mean for people like myself sharing life with Mark and all my parents, you know, who continue to be his caretakers uh, uh, even now at their advanced age? Um, what does redemption mean? Um, and of course, then the obvious question is, well, um, heaven, uh, however we understand it, at least in popular imagination, means that Mark is healed or cured from his Down syndrome. And, and of course, how do we even understand that? And how do we unpack that? And um, what does it mean to be either healed or cured from Down syndrome? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, uh, you know, there, you know there, there's the phenotypical dimension of, of what the features that people with Downs have. There is the behavioral dimension of how uh, people with Downs behave and of course, when I talk about these dimensions, I'm talking about broad spectrums because there is just no one phenotype. There's a spectrum, a Downs, a Downs spectrum for a phenotype. There's a, a, a range of behaviors for, for Downs uh, folks, um, et cetera. And, and of course, then there's also the peculiarity of Mark as Mark, uh, you know, in, in his walk with Jesus and his um, being shaped by life with just this set of parents and this set of brothers, not that set of parents and that set of brothers. So, so um, all of that then led me to think about, well, what would it mean for me to um, interact with someone like my brother Mark in heaven, supposedly healed or cured of his Down syndrome? And I guess I began to think about Down syndrome less as a problem that Mark had and more as a set of relationships that Mark had, and that therefore people like myself had with him, uh, that were differentiated from other relationships. And if that's the case, then the problem isn't necessarily that in heaven, Mark is no longer uh, is Amos Young going to not need his glasses in heaven? Maybe, maybe not. But the, the point is that becomes an immaterial question, right? Uh, what is Amos Young's eyesight going to be in heaven uh, at that particular point in time? You can see that kind of a question doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, it's really, it's really what are the characteristics and the way, and the relatable relational ways in which Amos exhibits in the world, and how is he recognized as Amos with that peculiarity of that identity? Um, and then, and then began to dawn on me that well, maybe Mark's healing and curing will will involve less a matter of an erasure of, if you will, the, the expressive manifestations of his Down syndrome. Because we wouldn't say that, that our behaviors or the way we look would completely be erased in heaven. Um, they'd be transformed, but would still be recognizable. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that, well, yeah, Jesus' resurrected body included a scar that allowed his disciples to identify him, mm-hmm. right? that there was something that allowed ongoing recognition. And so then it became the question of, okay, then the, the redemption of someone like Mark in that respect is the redemption of all of us. It's the transformation of who we are, but yet in ways that nevertheless allow our recognition. And, and from that perspective, um, what's wrong with Mark is less Mark's problem than a world that doesn't know how to engage with him, understand him, mm-hmm. respond to him and embrace him. 
And maybe what heaven involves is less that Mark gets fixed, but the rest of us get fixed so that now all of a sudden we can enjoy Mark and his contributions in ways that right now we're just a little bit too, um, and not, not as able to do, right? Yeah. Wow. about all of these in conversation with scripture and in conversation with, um, you know, other theological resources was a part what led me to, to the kinds of things that you introduced. Yeah. So one question I had was, you know, you talked about, um, you know, kind of what you said, I'm just a quote from your book says, disabilities are not necessarily evil, necessarily evil or blemishes to be eliminated. Most problematic are those whose disabilities are a constitutive, constitutive part of their identities. I'm just curious, how would you respond? How do you know what is part of their constitutive part of their identity or not? Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, you know, I think of one of my friends, his name is Shane Clifton, and he's written a couple of books as well that talk about his disability. He was, I think, in his late 30s, had a, had a serious accident injury that, that now he's, a, he's been a quadriplegic for like about the last decade, hmm. I believe. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do wonder, for instance, um, what would Shane be like in heaven? Would he be restored to his 39-year-old body? You know, some, the theological tradition said that our resurrected bodies will be uh, 30-year-old bodies. Hmm. And the rationale given for that was that, well, that was Jesus' resurrected body. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting, right? Um, Amos resurrected at age 30. Most people probably won't recognize him, hmm. which is maybe a good thing in heaven. But that's besides the point, right? That seems pretty arbitrary. Um, hmm. I don't know that we can based too much on the, the age of the resurrection body from, from Jesus's resurrected body at 30. But I, I think part of my point had to do with how aren't identities actually, you know, when, when we ask about constitutive identities, aren't those also formed over time and relationship? That raises some really intriguing questions, for instance, about what happens to an unborn baby mm-hmm. who may be in heaven. Yeah. Right. Um, what is the shape of that, of that person? Yeah. Um, is there ways for us to think about heaven as an ongoing unfolding of capacities that, that are part of what God as creator has endowed? Hmm. And from that perspective, then aren't, identi- aren't even constitutive identities um, uh, eternally unfolding? at a certain level so that even embryos can can unfold in their potentiality mm. or if you know a child dies at one year old for whatever set of reasons there's a resurrected body for that child all of a sudden become a 30 year old and who's going to recognize that child mm. or again these are these are in some respects not very helpful because we don't have any answers for them but i think my point would be something like this that if shane lives for a long time in his in a wheelchair decades maybe i don't know how long she's gonna live right um but at some point that wheelchair is going to be just simply part of how he makes his way in the world i mean people who are born and have grown up in wheelchairs don't know a life in a world apart from a wheelchair someone that was born let's say blind and and grows up blind that's constitutive for his or her identity they don't know the world any other way Mm-hmm. Someone who was born without an arm or someone who was born, you know, with a, a Helen Keller, for instance, Helen Keller's identity is what it is without her hearing and seeing abilities. She's just developed other ways to relate with the world based upon what she has had. 
And what does a resurrected body look like for Helen Keller? Does she even need ears to hear and eyes to see in heaven hmm. if she's there? Or are the ways in which she's learned how to relate to the world in heaven going to continue to enable her engagement with others in heaven? And maybe what the miracle of heaven involves will be you and I will be invited into a new modality of engaging others so that Helen Keller ceases to be a person we gaze upon rather becomes a person who now enriches our lives in a more direct way because the impediments that hinder our social relationships are transformed. I don't know. Those are the kinds of questions I ask as a theologian. I don't know that they keep me up at night, but they certainly make for some interesting book writing. Yeah, definitely. No, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. You know, constantly transforming, eternally transforming. That, that's pretty cool. Um, I got to be honest, there's a, there's a question that always comes up whenever I bring up this, you're, you're teaching in, in class. It's, uh, it's maybe not as serious, but I don't know, maybe it is serious. Uh, they always ask, okay, but what if someone was martyred for their faith and their hand was chopped off or their body part was like, what happens in, in the afterlife? <laughs> so they always ask me, so how would Amos respond to this? So I got you on video now. <laughs> They, you know, what, what happens to the fellow who fell overboard uh, in the um, North Atlantic slave trade and got eaten up by a shark? Mm. Yeah. Right. What happens to the person who literally, uh, I mean, the point is no less difficult if you talk about cremation, right? True. Or the point is no less difficult if you put people in boxes and bury them six feet under, eventually they disappear. Right, right. So help me out with that, and I'll give you the answer to the other one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I kind of always respond that, you know, the, the, there may, be, it may, be, may not be felt, though the, the, the marks may be present, but maybe not felt, you know, kind of some of the language in your book. Yeah, um, the, the, mar the, the marks of, that's a good point. I mean, from the perspective of the argument I made in my book, um, the marks of identity enable recognition. Yeah. So I think, I think the key question to be asked at that point is what, what, would, be, what, would, be, what would enable that recognition? Yeah. So I thought, oh, maybe there might be a scar on their neck if they were, you know, some, you know something like well, that. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. One other quote I love that you say in the book is, you know, people with disabilities are people first who shouldn't be defined solely by their disabilities. And if possible, they should be consulted rather than cared for paternalistically as if they were completely helpless creatures. I love that. I love that, especially as we think about even just church ministry. You know, when we, especially, let's be honest, in Pentecostal charismatic context, when we see someone with disabilities, do we, when they come in the doors, is it the primary thing we think is like, oh, how can we pray for them? Or maybe like, hey, how can they pray for us? And uh, so I really appreciate, you know, the heart that you had in that book. Really super helpful. Um, I know you're a busy guy, so I don't want to take up too much of your time here. Um, Amos, if uh, someone were to ask you, uh, Amos, what, you know, what's, what, how can I dive deeper into theology? What would be your answer? Well, they could take another course at Master Seminary for one <laughs> Okay. Uh, where you're teaching, and then they yeah. could be – through that, they can get introduced to my books. So, I mean, that's, nice. that's a good way to go. Oh, or, that's you a, just, or you can just come to Fuller Seminary. We've got online courses. There um, you go. Yeah. You can come up anywhere. Nice. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. Um, you know, to close, tell me a little bit of any books that are coming out or current books that you'd recommend for people to kind of get more acquainted with your, your works. 
Um, well, I've got a book coming out this fall on theological education, although that's oh. probably less something that, that lay people are interested in. And I'm also working on another book on higher education, Christian higher education. But again, oh, cool. that's, that's more written for folks that work in Christian higher ed rather than for lay people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, 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 editing, I'm finishing editing a book right now called um, From Kuala Lumpur to the Ends of the Earth. Oh, interesting. Uh, biblical and theological reflection from Malaysia and the Malaysian diaspora. Whoa. So it's, it's, it's a book in which me and about 10 or 12 other Malaysian, Malaysian born, Malaysian diaspora, and um, are put together. I'm really excited about it. I mean, it'll be the first book of its kind in which Malaysian theologians actually, uh, you know, pool their resources and say, Hey, Here's some perspectives that we can that we can contribute. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's pretty cool. Okay, look forward to seeing that. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of books. You know, you got uh, the missiological spirit. You got the uh, you got the charismatic charismatic spirit here. Um, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, learning theology with Amos Young. Uh, teach tracking the spirit of Christian faith. The dialogical spirit over here, and uh, another one of my favorites here. Uh, renewing Christian theology. That's a, that's a good one. I really like the way you kind of, uh, you know, talked about theology and had a lot of nice pictures in there too, which was kind of cool. Amos, if someone wanted to uh, connect with you, uh, is there any, any social media handles or ways for them to connect with you and maybe get updated on uh, some of your, your works that are coming out? Uh, I mean, usually I'll post them to Facebook. So that's probably the, the easiest way to go. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Amos. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely put some links in the description below if people want to uh, uh, purchase any of Amos's books and maybe connect with him uh, on social media and elsewhere. Uh, so thank you so much, Amos. Uh, really appreciate you. Well, thanks a lot, Josh, and in particular for uh, pointing out all those books. Yeah, no Best problem. No problem. Right. Bye-bye. Okay. God bless. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you found this helpful, uh, I'd encourage you to really share it with other people. Uh, Not only that, hopefully bless other people, but that actually even helps get the word out on Theology Breakdown. And uh, be sure to uh, like it uh, on your favorite social media platform. Hey, I'm grateful to be a part of supporting you in your journey. Uh, God bless and much love.